Really, Talos is where Ted Hughes got the idea of the Iron Giant. Is Talos the robot? Yes. Yeah. You're so excited. I'm, I, I... It's not Norm, but calls it a robot. It's not a real, real robot. Yes, he's a real robot. Really, he's a universal robot. That's what justice is. Universal robotics. Um, Talos, book five, you're excited. You may not be excited when you read book five. I don't care. I'm really excited right now. Okay, well, that's good. Is it um, true that it was modeled after Lord Grey de Milton? Um, well, that's the question. Mm. Um, who's Lord Grey? Is it Talos or is it Artigal? Mm. Um, but that's not a question that we really need to broach to. But book five is, if you take book five seriously, um, which I sort of don't, I think it's a kind of parody, but it's hard to say. Um, book five is Spencer, it is most unpleasant. Uh, which is to say his political views about what should become of the Irish are, let's say, Anglo-oriented. Um, and he had his reasons, but they weren't good enough. Uh, on the other hand, if you see it as um, some sort of immense parody, um, sort of like Swift, if you guys know Modest Proposal, um, if you see book five as Spencer's version of... Do you know Modest Proposal? Do people know about this? So they starva- so, Can you describe it, Tony? Uh, there's starvation in Ireland when Swift is writing, and his solution is to have, uh, have babies be eaten. Yeah. He says I- Ireland can, can export its babies, and they can be eaten. And really, it's a win-win situation for everyone, because there's lots of food and fewer mouths to feed. Um, so it all works out perfectly. This is his modest proposal. Swift, of course, is Irish. And um, what he says at the end of a modest proposal is, uh, if you have any better ideas, uh, you should really try to come up with them because the way things stand right now, um, it's the equivalent to eating babies. And um, so it's a powerful turn at the very end. At any rate, um, some people want to see book five that way. Uh, Unfortunately, just recently, um, Spencer's a lot of Spencer's private documents just came out, and it looks like um, he was a little bit over upset about what was going on um, where he lived in Ireland, where his house was burnt down, and all sorts of things happened to him that he that he didn't like. So he was, you know, the definition of a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Um, Spencer was mugged. And um, it doesn't come out so well. But book five, at any rate, it's extremely excessive. Um, it's extremely excessive and sort of crazy. Uh, but Artigal, our friend Artigal, he doesn't come out so well. Uh, on any, in any way, he doesn't come out so well. And what we're going to do with the, actually, I think book five is hilarious. I think you should read it as a hilarious book. Um, but it's <laughs> sorry. It's still so excited. <laughs> yes, but it is also one of the one of the most hated books of the Fairy Queen. Um, I don't know what C.S. Lewis thought about it. He probably liked. No, I don't think he liked it. I do him an injustice. It's hard to do C.S. Lewis an injustice, but that would be an injustice. Um, all right, book four. What are we thinking about it? I what I was thinking. I would I would start asking you to do is think about now because you, now you, now you're old Spencer hands, right? Um, and um, and what you're seeing is that if you want to um, go to the lofty Empyrean 
of the world of poetry, Spencer's your guy. So, Spencer for hire. That is to get our, Oh my God. Sorry. Only people who lived in the 80s will know what that No, you all know who's Spencer for hire, right? Sort of? God, look at that nod. Okay, there is a quiz today, Doug. Sorry, it rang a bell. It rang a bell. Do people not know Spencer for hire? So Spencer is Robert B. Parker, who died last year, um, his, his detective. Do you really not know this? There were lots of movies. I've they were terrible. There was a TV show yeah. every week. There were movies. All right, they're, they're, they are Boston-based mysteries, um, kind of noirish mysteries. They're actually not very good. Um, that and Rockford Files. Yeah, um, not as good as Rockford Files. Um, but they're written by Robert B. Parker. They're, they all take place in Boston. He knows his Boston really well. Um, he has a Ph.D., had a Ph.D., I don't know if you still have a PhD when you're dead, um, but he had a PhD. He wrote um, his dissertation on Hammett and Chandler. People know who they are: Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, um, the two great um, detective American detective writers of the 20th century. Uh, Chandler's main detective was named Philip Marlowe. So when Robert Parker decided he wanted to make some money, he decided, well, if he takes Marlowe, named after Christopher Marlowe, no doubt, I will take Spencer. Um, so the name of his detective is Spencer after Edmund Spencer. So if you'd known Spencer for hire and if you'd known about these books, you would now be in awe. You would say, ooh, you would be like the, the, the creatures in Toy Story when the hook comes down. Yes. So just pretend all that happened. And now you've learned this really interesting fact, and, and you are smarter than a fifth grader. Um, so that's really good. Okay. So one, two, three. Ooh. Wow. All right. So how about Spencer for sure? So now you have some... Um, uh, um, some experience reading allegory. Uh, book four is the book of? Friendship. Friendship. Good. And how does this play out? Talk about, just just um, free associate, or um, not freely, but bound, bound associations, produce some bound associations for the stuff that's happening in book four and how it goes with friendship and why friendship would follow chastity. Let me start that as the first question. Why is friendship the book that follows chastity? Uh, you can answer this on any level that you want. Why does it make sense? Uh, remember there's a huge break. There's a seven-year break between the publication of book three and the publication of books four through six. Um, but that break establishes a continuity. The story picks up kind of where it leaves off, except the very, very end of the original book three is replaced with a new ending seven years later. And that new ending just means, oh, no, more stuff has to happen. It doesn't just resolve here. So a resolution is its like capping the oil well of the uh, plot of the first three books is capped at the end of, of, of the first, the 1589 version, but then the cap is released and now we have more plot going on. So why? How? Why friendship after chastity? On any level you want to answer that? Anyone but Vina. 
You have that eager look. <laughs> Doug, you look like you're going to spin something. I, I well, I spinning. Very astute. That's okay. I mean, it's just like they both deal with human relationships. It's just like a different yes. Like, relationships rather than Okay, yes, yeah, good. So holiness and temperance don't really deal with human relationships. Holiness, holiness and temperance are both in some sense about intensely, um, about cultivations of the self. Um, in holiness you cultivate, Red Cross cultivates his own holiness. He messes, he screws other people up by doing that. He makes mistakes in his relationships to other people. It's not that these things are... Um, are are easily um, distinguishable as purely solipsistic and purely other-oriented. They're not. But nevertheless, holiness and temperance are about things that you cultivate within yourself. Chastity starts out looking similarly as a thing that you cultivate within yourself. If I just avoid others, then I will be chaste. But even that intensely self-involved and erroneous view of chastity um, already has within it the idea of others. Even if it's a negative idea, I must avoid them. I must avoid women, or I must avoid men. Um, even that has within itself an acknowledgement that chastity, unlike holiness and unlike temperance, Maybe there's a continuum, but let's just say, first of all, um, put it in a binary way. Unlike holiness and unlike temperance, the notion of chastity doesn't make sense in a world in which there are not other people. Holiness can. You can be holy when you're holy alone. Temperance at least makes some sense in the absence of others. You can be temperate even if um, what you're dealing, even if you're only dealing with your own self, temperance is still available to you. You still shouldn't eat too much. You still shouldn't drink too much. You still shouldn't sleep too late, etc. Um, chastity, in a sense, it either makes too much sense or no sense at all to talk about chastity in a world in which you're alone. Um, it can't be a virtue in a world in which you're alone. You can't say, well, everyone else has been killed in a nuclear holocaust, but at least I'm chased. Um, because it's not something that you're doing if you're chased. Chastity always implies some sort of relation to others. So between book two and book three, we move from relations which are cultivations within the self to relations which have something to do with other people. That's going to be true of books three through six. That is the last four books of the Fairy Queen. Um, the books of, work with me here, Chastity, Friendship, then Justice, justice and finally courtesy. courtesy. So justice is about deciding how things will be distributed fairly between more than one person, among more than two people. No one expects the proper preposition. Um, justice is going to therefore always be at the very least binary, in fact probably at the very least trinary, which is to say that someone who is deciding justice is deciding it between two people who are at odds with each other. 
That's what article does. Um, that's what Solomon does, for example, with the two women, both of whom claim the baby, since that seems to keep coming up in, in this class. And then courtesy is about, is again at least trinary, because courtesy is about acting appropriately to the person, for the person um, whom you are involved with at any particular time. So it is courteous among the members of one class to act in a certain way. It is courteous to, there's a certain courtesy that you do to those who are above you. There's a courtesy that you do to those who are peers. And there's a courtesy that you do to those who are below you. So courtesy further expands the um, plurality of, of the field in which the virtue takes its meaning, from which the virtue takes its meaning. Um, but already, if you again look at Guyon versus Red Cross, they don't fight. And now we can talk about another reason that they don't fight. They don't fight because their virtues have nothing to do with others. That is, they, Red Cross doesn't have to fight Guyon because Red Cross can be holy in himself. Guyon doesn't have to fight Red Cross because Guyon can be temperate in himself. But then when we get to chastity, we have the first fight between, the t between two good guy knights, between Britomart and Guyon. Why? Because chastity, unlike the first two virtues, cannot be defined as a singular, in a singular field. It is always doubled, it is always involved with, entangled with others. And the idea that Britomart sees her beloved in a mirror cuts both ways. That is, it can look that can look like an attempt to singularize chastity. To be chaste is to love only my mirror image. Is what the bad version of falling in love with your mirror image would be, the narcissistic version of falling in love with your mirror image. Or the good version, because all of these things have bad versions and good versions. That's the whole point about how error works in the Fairy Queen, is that there's always something that looks like the virtue, but is subtly and erroneously, subtly errs from the virtue, is subtly off from it. So again, look in the mirror and what you may mistakenly do is make chastity a single virtue, a virtue of singleness, which it isn't in the Fairy Queen. Or look in the mirror and see yourself redoubled, that is made into the paragon or the knight of a virtue which is not single but, but requires doubling yourself, that you cannot do alone. So the first step towards that doubling is to look into the mirror. Um, Lacanians, any of you a Lacanian? None of you read the mirror stage? Um, the, have you heard of it? The like phrase the, the mirror stage? You've heard of it? Yeah, I've read an excerpt. Right? It's, yeah. it's not long. You probably did read the whole thing. The whole thing's only like eight pages long. I mean, unless you just read a paragraph. Um, so for Lacan, Lacan, um, the French psych, the the wacko French psychoanalyst of um, the mid twentieth century, 
um, brilliant and a charlatan at the same time, as many brilliant people are. Um, uh, early on, the essay that sort of made him famous was um, he was interested in a sort of Conrad Lorenz way about um, how animals, and in particular pigeons, began being socialized and could be socialized by looking at mirror images of themselves. At that point, they saw themselves as other than themselves, as like others. To look in a mirror is to become aware of yourself as in a way that you never were before. Um, before you ever look in a mirror, before you catch sight of your own reflection, the great difference between you and others is that everyone else has a head and you don't. Um, you look at the world and you look at the world from a headless perspective. But then you look in a mirror and, oh my God, you're a person like others. And that is, um, Lacan says, a traumatic but essential moment of joining the human race, the moment when you become aware that you are like others. It doesn't have to happen literally through looking in a mirror, um, because obviously mirrors are fairly recent inventions, but it, ha but it does occur when you become aware of yourself. Again, you could put it as having a head, um, as not simply being this kind of hollow looker-on at the world, but also as someone who, who is visible the way others are visible. Um, in Spencer, that's why looking would matter again. You become aware of a virtue that is not entirely in your own control because it's a relational virtue rather than a solo virtue. So holiness and temperance are solo virtues, but with chastity we come to a relational virtue. Now, we can already see that happening with temperance. That's why I said it's actually a little bit more complicated. If you don't see it as binary, you can see holiness as, as purely a solo virtue, but temperance as a virtue that has to do with how the self interacts with what's outside it. What you're temperate about are the things that are offered to you by the world. Mammon offering wealth to Guyon, for example, or the Bower of Bliss offering sex to Guyon, or Mirth offering fun to Guyon. <coughs> Nevertheless, those are things that Guyon is temperate about, not people. In fact, Guyon's problem is he doesn't seem to really notice that other people exist from first to last. He doesn't seem to notice that other people exist. When you get to chastity, then you are in a, in a state and a space where other people matter. And then that's, you could say, what the last four books of The Fairy Queen are about. So then, as Doug says, we go from chastity to friendship because both of those are versions of a relation to others. Chastity as a flip side of love or as a modality of love Without chastity, no love is, you could say, what Britomart um, learns, but also what she learns is without love, no chastity. That is, chastity and love are not opposed to each other, which is what she believes at first, but chastity and love are functions of each other. And then we go to friendship. So it makes sense, you could say, 
as somewhat parallel virtues that friendship should follow on chastity. Um, what about the differences between chastity and friendship? Or how are, how are they, I don't mean to say contrast them, um, you know, that friends with benefits, <coughs> definitely not chastity. Um, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, um, what makes them different virtues? Why are, um, there are a lot of similarities between them, and yet they're different virtues. What makes them different virtues in Spencer? They can coexist. Cause, sure. Cause chastity is that sort of love, but just with one person. So uh-huh. Marriage is sort of its ultimate manifestation, whereas with friendship, it talks a lot. I think it's when um, Arthur is with uh, two of the ladies, but... And it talks with about Amelia how, and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Amaret. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. So it talks about how he wasn't lusting after them. So you can still have friendship in that. It's just not a, it's not a romantic thing. Okay, yeah, so you can have friends between sexes. Right. That's a good thing. Right. Um, and still be chased. Yeah, and not benefits. Right. Yeah. But also, um, love <coughs> can be a sort of friendship. Like okay. Amias describes... Well, that stanza, that little stanza describes um, Am, uh, Amelia as Amias's friend. Right, nice. Good. Okay, good. Yeah, Ben. Um, you know, examining the two separate books, chastity is comparatively, I mean, just sort of real dog. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very lonely virtue. Uh, you know, I mean, the the object of Brimach's desire, you know, she hasn't encountered him yet. Yeah. Uh, and essentially, you know, the, the only person who goes with her is, is, is it Glaus? Glauke. Glauke. Um... And, you know, just, she is uh, a sole force for that entire book, where when you compare it to the next book, I mean, you have, you know, uh, knights consistently uh, who are, you know, around such friends that they're exchanging armor or becoming parts of each other Mm -hmm. or physically representing each other. I mean, to a degree that just Britomart does not, you know, get to experience at all because she is, you know... Alone in her chastity. Yeah, at least she doesn't get to experience it in book three. I'm not sure that that's quite true about book four. Yeah. Um, and Britomart still is our main knight in book four, isn't she? I mean, she doesn't play quite the role that she does in book three. But still, I mean, if you like her, and God forbid you shouldn't, if you like her, it's a joy to see how important, you know, that she's still the single most important knight in book four, even though there are a lot of other knights and we have to deal with a lot of other stuff. It's still Britomart who's at the center of book four. Um, but, yeah, but just to go back to what you say about chastity being a lonely virtue, that's a, that's a really good way of, of putting what, what um, uh, I think Doug and I were trying to put, which is that, um, lon- that you can't imagine, I'm sure you were trying to say all of that, you can't imagine um, holiness as a lonely virtue, even though Red Cross spends a lot of time alone. Um, he also, he doesn't spend that much time alone. And Guyon is, whatever else he is, he isn't lonely. He doesn't have the concept of loneliness. Um, you have to be a human being, which he isn't, to have the concept of loneliness. But Britomart, yeah, she's lonely. And um, to some extent she likes solitude, that's why she goes to the sea in order to um, feed her wound. Um, you know, and the autoerotic idea of feeding your wound is... is um, 
it's a pleasure in loneliness, but the wound is loneliness. Uh, seeing and falling in love only through sight, um, that is the experience of loneliness, you could say. I've only seen that person, and now I'm desperate for them, but I had no contact with them except at a distance, seeing, which is always contact at a distance. Um, so the fact that Britomart is lonely is already what's making her virtue an other-oriented virtue. Um, now, what we talked about, just to go on with, with um, chastity and friendship a little bit, um, we talked about jealousy in book three, which is obviously really important. Um, we talked about uh, how there's no jealousy in the Garden of Adonis, but otherwise there's plenty of jealousy in book three. Um, is there jealousy in book four? Who's jealous of what? What an idiot. Sorry? What an idiot. Artic article's an idiot. Yes. Yeah, um, he's the genuine article. Uh, Scudamore is jealous. Scudamore is jealous of? Of Britta Mart. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Good. A lot of people are jealous of Britta Say that again, Lurie. I was going to say that a lot of people are jealous of Britta a lot of people, everybody's jealous of Britta Mart. Yeah, poor Britta Mart. Um, and then Glenn and Paradell are jealous of each other because of the women that they have and that they want and that they're just jealous all the time. Yeah, so Blandamore and Paradell are constantly experiencing <laughs> jealousy of each other. Um, who's the object of jealousy mostly? I mean, Amaret clearly, but who else is an object of jealousy? The false Florimel is is kind of the the counter. She's the MacGuffin in book four. Do do people know what a MacGuffin is? No one. Yeah, yeah you guys should know. Yeah, Ben. Um, I think that it was coined by Hitchcock. It was coined by Hitchcock. It's basically like a plot that doesn't really matter. It's just that kind of brings the plot along, but. Yeah, so Hitchcock described a MacGuffin. Do you want to say more, Tony? Perhaps. That's what I remember. Yeah, so Hitchcock, um, you've all seen Alfred Hitchcock movies, right? Um, the greatest Spencerian movie maker of the 20th century. I mean that really. I didn't mean it really, but now I do. Um, he really is. Um, so he described a MacGuffin. Have you, if you guys saw MI3, I think it is, the rabbit's foot in MI3, it's the thing that... Uh, the Scientologist and, and the lady are trying to get. It's somewhere in Shanghai, I think, or Kuala Lumpur. And um, talk about your Spencerian religion. Um, so they know that they're, they're, the impossible mission is to get the rabbit's foot. What is the rabbit's foot? We don't know, but it's really important. And because it's so important, it's, of course, being kept very carefully hidden on the hundredth floor of a skyscraper, which is where you would put the most valuable thing you could possibly have in the world, right? Which is all we have at Kuala Lumpur, is yes. millions of skyscrapers. <laughs> have you seen it? Is it Kuala Lumpur? The... I come from Kuala Lumpur. I know, no, no. Have you seen the movie? Oh, yeah. No, partly only, slightly. But and is then it Kuala Lumpur they go to? Do I don't remember? think so. I'm not sure. Right. I, I don't know enough about the movie. Anyhow, so the rabbit's foot is what... Um, what they're after, and they're not quite sure what the rabbit's foot is. It might be some um, hideous weapon. It might be some um, some bioweapon. Some, some bio it might be some huge amount of money. They never find out. You think you're going to find out. You never do. It's just called the rabbit's foot. 
and that is uh, a Hitchcockian idea. Um, that is, the MacGuffin is an objective in a suspense movie, especially, that everyone is after. The Maltese Falcon is a MacGuffin. Um, the 39 Steps is a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is an objective that everyone is after, and part of being after it is wanting to know what it is. Um, but what's really important is that everyone is after it. And part of the mystery and part of what keeps us interested is wanting to know, A, who gets it, and B, what, it, what is it? And, um, Partially, don't you think Rachel Mott's MacGuffin is article? Because she doesn't really know yeah, yeah, but she yeah. wants. Yeah, but we, and, and to some extent that's right for us. That is, Artigal and the false Florimel are in an interesting relation to each other. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, um, the story that Hitchcock told about the MacGuffin is two people are in a train. You'll see what a Spencerian story this is. Two people get into a train car, and one of them puts a package on the rack, and the other one says, um, that's an odd-looking package. What is it? And the first one is he's sitting down to read his newspaper, and says, oh, that's my MacGuffin. And the second one says, your MacGuffin? What's a MacGuffin? And the first one says, a MacGuffin is a device for trapping lions in Scotland. And the first one says, but there are no lions in Scotland. And the second one nods sagely and says, yes, and that's not a MacGuffin. <laughs> so that's how Hitchcock told the story. And um, so lions in Scotland were definitely very queen territory. Um, that is, it's things that you chase that um, seem to have meaning, but then melt away like snow when you get to the end of your story. Um, they don't matter. They stop mattering anymore. Um, the Wizard of Oz is a MacGuffin. Um, you finally get to the wizard and he's nothing. Um, and all he tells you is you could have gone home any time. Um, spoiler, sorry. Um, uh, well, if you think of The Wizard of Oz, it's also a Spencerian movie, but not as Spencerian as Hitchcock. So, um, the false Florimel, she's what everyone wants. She's the counter, she's the, um, she's the prize, she's the goal that everybody wants. And so there's considerable jealousy over the false Florimel. Um, what else is there jealousy of in book four? There's jealousy everywhere. What's the, what is the presiding, let's put it this way, what in book four is the presiding um, danger to friendship? What is the, who represents what screws up friendship? Ate, yes, nice. Yeah, not eight. Ate. Um, so Ate or discord. Um, Ate said, puts people at, at enmity with each other. Uh, makes them compete in anger and rage with each other. Um, so there's Ate, which is discourse. And uh, what, what else? What are the other, what other um, spirits of dissension are there in book four? Ate is the main one, but what other spirits of dissension? Tony. Duessa. Okay, Duessa, who's always who's always doubling things. Good. Um, the villainess. What else? Who else? Lust. And the camera. P the giant. Poenia. Yeah, Poenia. Yeah. 
whose it name is. means anyone know? She actually ends up okay. Yeah, she reforms. She yeah. reforms. Anyone know what her name means? Guess? I think it means penal punishment, punishment. in some way. Yeah. But also that fellow in the cave, the, cave, the care fellow. Yes, here. The um, manufacturing iron wedges. Uh huh. He was, in a sense, a sort of a subordinate uh, irritation. A <laughs> subordinate irritation, yes, indeed. Um, care, the House of Care is really interesting. Uh, that's a very interesting uh, moment in Book Four, um, and poor Scudamore being there. What else? Who else? Hag at the cabin. I can't remember what she is. Slander. Slander. Yeah. yeah. Slander is going to be really important. Who gets slandered? Hole. Sorry? Thief in hole. <laughs> that was her favorite. Yeah. Calling the men the thief and the women the whores. Right. Yeah. So um, slander is... Um, what's the relation of slander to jealousy and slander to friendship? In, just in life. You slander someone, it can create jealousy because it can spread something that's not true uh-huh. another person. Yeah. And spoil friendship. And spoil friendship. Yeah. Um, so slander, and who is the victim of slander in book four? Who? Britta Mark. yeah. Um, who else? It's going to become more important later, but it's already um, developing in book four. Yeah, Tony? Amaret. Amaret, okay. Yeah, Ben? Yeah. And um, probably, ultimately, most significantly, Timius and Belphoebe. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like what's going on between them. Hmm? Um, that's what slander is interested in. Um, again, if Belphoebe is standing for Queen Elizabeth, um, now, seven years after her introduction in 1589, um, a lot of political water has flowed under the, under London Bridge in those seven years. Um, and the question, again, of who Elizabeth is favoring and how and why, and is she really favoring people, um, jealousy and friendship are a huge issue now in um, the court of Elizabeth. And they, and there's at least, um, for me, it's the least interesting part of uh, the Fairy Queen is to look at its historical, um, look at, at the historical commentary that it's making, but it's there. Um, so that's just um, the slander he's talking about is slander that's very live in the political situation at the time. Okay, so there's jealousy and there's friendship. Um, and there's basically now the question is what would be just this is just to repeat a little bit what we've already said but to try to consolidate it what would be the um, what could friendship offer um, that to counter jealousy what is the outline of the um, st- of the of the face-off between jealousy and friendship. Or l- let me ask this another way: What's the, according to Book Four, what's the definition of friendship? How would you define friendship um, 
or imagine that Spencer is defining it from book four, The Fairy Queen. Vina. Faith. Faith? In that person. Okay, faith in another person. So that, in a sense, is the opposite of jealousy, right? Yeah. And well, it's ironically what Belle Phoebe says to Tinius when she misunderstands what's going on. She goes, is this the faith? Right. So. Good. Yeah, so she misunderstands. What does she think is going on? Anyone remember? Um, why? Not to Amrit, but why? Oh, um, someone or other is wounded. He was trying to, like, Yeah, and he's trying to save her. Yeah. Sorry? Monster. Yeah. There's definitely an A. Yeah. Ben? I mean, particularly with that image of the spear breaking her and her being covered in blood, you know, sort of breaking the tree. Yep. Good. Yeah, and by the way, do you remember um, Britomart's shield? It's a bunch of broken spears, right? <laughs> a bunch of broken spears stuck right into it. <laughs> um, not going to say much there. Uh, <laughs> She's the original ball buster. <laughs> or something, yes. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> like a nice t-shirt with Britomart, the original ball buster. <laughs> As long as you didn't have have the graphics. <laughs> also, Timius was the one who injured uh, Emirate, who caused the wounds. Yes. Um, okay, so she has no faith. Belphoebe <laughs> has no faith in Timius. Um, what else? What's, what's another definition of friendship? I think friendship goes beyond faith in someone else. That is... So friendship as opposed to jealousy, let's say in this sense, that it's the first mistake Scudamore makes, is to think, um, clearly it's a mistake for him to think that um, Britomart has betrayed him. Um, he has no faith in Britomart. Um, he thinks Britomart has betrayed him because he gets Britomart's sex wrong. Um, and everything is officially heterosexual in the Fairy Queen. Um, although that's really only officially. Yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, on that point, I've been wondering about something in um, Canto 1 of Book 4. Again. Yeah. You know, uh, I was looking at the notes on Bertamar, uh, you know, feigning to be a man. To, uh -huh. um, to is it, It's Amaret at the beginning, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and there's some note that that just, you know, it, it's alluding to something, but I'm not really sure. What page are we on? What, um, what page is the note? It's probably the one where Brickamart's pretending to flirt with her just to put up a yeah, good it's, it's male about, front. It's about mm -hmm. the, the flirting one. Uh, um, it's uh, 1167. Page 1167, <coughs> note. The 5.15. The humor of the passage where Amorit is afraid of her rescuer and Britomart pretends amorousness to hide her sex is a side of Spencer's genius too often overlooked by his critics. Britomart's resolution of the ambiguous situation is the revelation of her true sex. Okay. Are they, are they trying to suggest that she's actually a man? I mean, like, what would... I, I just don't understand. No, no, no. So go back, go back to um, book four. Uh, Canto one. Canto one, verse... Um, uh, this is page um, ah, where is it? 
Um, um, it's here. It's very early on. Yeah. Um, uh, no, it's Canto 7. Who, who fought to hide her pain and sex the better? Mask her wounded mind, did and said so many things. That freaked her out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so she's... Okay, so, it's, yeah, read all of stanza 7. Um... Um, eh, sorry, five. Yet should it be a pleasant, a pleasant tale to tell the diverse usage and demeanor daint that each to other made as oft befell, for Amoret right fearful was and faint, lest she with blame her honor should attain, that every word did tremble as she spake, and every look was coy and wondrous quaint, and every limb that touched her did quake, yet could she not but courteous countenance to her make. Um, so it's fun to see, it's a pleasant tale to see how Amrit is scared that Britomart um, will now want the spoils of victory, namely sex with her, to make Amrit her lady. Um, and so she's trembling and looking coy, and it's very hard to tell the difference now between true coyness and false coyness. That is, coyness as a, um, as a flirtatious, seductive device and the actual coyness that she's feeling um, because she also had to be courteous to Britomart, to Sir Britomart, who saved her. Um, but she didn't want to go beyond that, for well she wist, as true it was indeed, that her life's lord and patron of her health right well deserved as his dueful need, her, excuse me, I got that wrong, um, for fool she was, as true it was indeed, he's saying that Britomar does deserve this, that her life's lord and patron of her health right well deserved as his dueful need, her love, her service, and her utmost wealth. So she owed everything to Britomar. All is his justly that all freely dealt, that is, dealeth. Nevertheless, her honor dearer than her life she sought to save, as thing reserved from stealth. Die had she lever with enchanter's knife than to be false in love, professed a virgin wife. So she owes her life to Britomart, and so she owes him everything except that she prefers her chastity to her life, and she would rather have been killed by Bucerain than give up her virginity to Britomart. There, too, her fear was made so much the greater through fine abusion of that Britain made. That is, Britomart is abusing her, that is, abusing her confidence, making her think that she's a man who, for to hide her feigned sex the better, Britomart in order to make people think she's male, and mask her wounded mind. Remember, she's still wounded all the way back from the beginning of Book 3, both did and said full many things so doubtful to be weighed that well she wist not what by them to guess, for otherwhiles to her she purpose made of love and otherwhiles of lustfulness that much she feared his mind would grow to some excess. Um, so Amoret is, a, so Britomart is pretending to be a guy in order to disguise herself and um, make Amoret think, think that she's a guy. She courts Amoret, and um, sometimes she acts all lusty, and sometimes she, you, you can imagine Roseanne doing this, um, and sometimes she acts, um, you know, when Roseanne famously sang the national, national anthem and then behaved like a baseball player, do you, do you all know about this? You can find it on YouTube, I'm sure. Uh, it got her into a whole lot of trouble. Um, but um, 
she's pretending to be um, male, that much she feared his mind would grow to some excess. Um, that's, as, that's not me reading into it, as the next line tells you. His will she feared. Um, will at the time is slang for genitalia. Um, and so she fears his, um, it's a pun that Shakespeare, that Will Shakespeare likes to make, um, he says to the dark lady. And will thou hast, and will to boot, and will in overplus is, um, a, is a couple of lines from the sonnet. And it's basically you have me, whose name is Will, and you have your own Will, plus you have other people's, well, Willies, um, in addition to my own. And um, that's a very old pun. Um, his will she feared, for him she surely thought to be a man, such as indeed he seemed, and much the more by that he lately wrought, when her from deadly thrall thraldom he redeemed. Um, so then they get to the castle, and what's happening now is Britomart is actually failing to show friendship or faith to Amoret because she's hiding what she really is. Um, on the other hand, she's what her relation to Amoret is, is one of friendship. Um, Scudamore, to whom her relationship is also one of friendship, also fails to see what she really is, and so he's angry and jealous at her. Um, they get to the castle, and just what, just quickly, what happens at the castle? What's the rules of the castle they come to? Yeah. People have to be in couples, or they have to sleep inside. Uh huh. Okay. And so, what happens? How does Britomart solve this? Um, what problem arises and how does she solve it? Ben? Well, um, you know, this, this other knight wants uh, Amorite, but she obviously feels a duty to oppose that. And in order to solve the difficulty, um, as a knight, she takes a lady, but as a lady, she takes a knight. Right. So the difficulty is that, first of all, there are three of them. There's a triangle. And triangles work fine, as we know from Triamond, who is, the, who is actually the patron of friendship. Triangles work fine when it's a question of friendship, but they do not work fine when it's a question of love. So the situation Amaret finds herself in at the castle is she's got to sleep with one of two men, Britta Mart or this other knight. And that's not so good. Um, but what Britta Mart does is she defeats the knight, and now that poor other knight is going to have to sleep outside. Um, but Britomart solves the problem. Because she defeats that other knight, she's indicating that she's not his lover. She's fighting against him. Chastity wins out once more. She defeats the other knight. She's fighting against him. But then she can be friends with him by taking him as her knight in friendship rather than in love. In the meantime, she reveals herself to Amoret as a woman, thereby indicating to Amoret that her relationship to Amoret is one of friendship rather than of love. So the, the love triangle is solved through friendship rather than the binary of love, you get the trinary of friendship. That's the first episode that matters in book four of The Fairy Queen, and that's the transition from love slash chastity to friendship. Okay, uh, quiz for sure for hire. Spencer for, I can't do it, um, on Wednesday. <laughs>